0: You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here with Dr. Margaret Rutherford talking about her new book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. Dr. Rutherford has spent more than 25 years treating individuals and couples for depression, anxiety, and relationship issues. She started noticing a troubling trend in her practice of patients who looked on the surface like everything was okay, but underneath there was a dark depression brewing. Really interested to talk with Dr. Rutherford today about her research and about how even teenagers who look perfect on the surface might have problems, and what to look for, and how to engage with teens, and make sure they know it's okay to open up to you. Dr. Rutherford, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Okay, can you just give us the lowdown here on, um, you know, what is perfectly hidden depression? How did this come about in your life? And how did you kind of become so interested in this topic?
1: You know, Andy, I'd never wanted to write a book. I love being a therapist. I've been a therapist for gosh, 28 years now. And so I wasn't looking for a subject uh, to write about, but this, this subject found me I had started blogging back in 2012, and then in April of 2014, I was just sitting around thinking about some of the people I've treated over the years who, when they walked in my office, they certainly didn't talk about being depressed. In fact, if I asked them if they were depressed, they said, oh, no, no, I've got too many blessings in my life. I'm doing great. They come in for eating disorders, or they realized they had to take a clonopin every night to go to sleep, and that bothered them, or... Maybe they were having some anxiety. So what I did notice was that the people in front of me, when I would ask them historical questions, would talk about something really bad happening to them and they'd be smiling at me. And I remember saying one to one of them, you know, if I turned down the audio, I would think that you were talking to me about what you'd had for dinner last night. I mean, th- there was just no emotional connection with rapes or being bullied or moving multiple times or you know parents being alcoholics or something it was kind of shrugged off like oh well i didn't have it as bad as a lot of people or something like that yeah so i started so i wrote a blog post about those folks and i just picked a term out of the air and i said let's call it the perfectly hidden depressed person are you one well sure enough the post went viral and at the time, I was, I was writing for the Huffington Post, and they put it on their site, and I got hundreds of emails, like, wow. how did you know this was happening? It's like you're inside my head. How did you figure this out? What is this? So I got curious, wow. and I started looking in the popular literature for what was out there about perfectionism and depression, and I found Brene Brown's completely wonderful work, uh, about shame and vulnerability and perfectionism, but she didn't make a link with depression. Um, so then there was another book I found by Terrence Real. I don't want to talk about it, which was an incredibly good book about covert depression in men, but he didn't talk about perfectionism. Uh. So I thought, well, there doesn't look to be a popular book out there about it, and so I, with, with the encouragement of some author friends of mine, they said, well, "You know, you can write a book." I went, Bleh. <laughs> but I gave it a whirl, and I found a wonderful publisher who just did a fantastic job with their editing, and and lo and behold, November of 2019, Perfectly Hidden Depression was published.
0: And so, was it hard to pull all your everything you knew about it and had learned about it into a book or did it come together pretty easy?
1: I think my family doctor tells me he thinks this book almost killed me. (laughs) I had every known malady to man practically. (laughs) Uh, No, it was not easy. Actually, what I had done after I wrote that blog post, I started just trying to think more about these people. Like, well, what do they have in common? I think it was a year later that I wrote another blog post called The 10 Characteristics of Perfectly Hidden Depression. And as I was sort of formulating my own ideas, by the time I did the book, some of those ideas were really pretty solid in my mind, at least. And the important part of this to hear, especially if your listeners are teenagers or their parents and their parents which i know they are what is happening andy is that this is a presentation of depression but these people will fall through the cracks because they don't fit the criteria for depression they don't look depressed they don't tell you they're depressed they they're very engaged and active and busy and successful and have lots of friends and so what's kind of scary about this, what's very scary about this, is that clinicians and doctors and teachers and parents don't realize that their perfect-looking friend or their perfect-looking daughter or son or their perfect-looking spouse, there could be something wrong. The pressure has just gotten to be too great. And that's why I'm trying to sound the alarm so strongly for this, because i um I know, I've talked to people now, hundreds of people who said, you know, I either tried to die by suicide or I went to a doctor and they said I wasn't depressed and, and yet, you know, three weeks later, I, I was in a psych hospital. So it's, it's really something we need to pay attention to.
0: talked about, um, the 10 characteristics of PhD, what are some of those or how, what are the, you know, important ones to be aware of?
1: Sure. Well, again, let me point out that perfectly hidden depression, as I think about it, is not a diagnosis. It's a syndrome. And what a syndrome is, is a group of behaviors and beliefs that are often found together, like, uh, salt and pepper or, you know, something like that. You usually, when you find one, you found the other, find the other. Um, The ones that I have um, talked about in the book are being highly perfectionistic with a constant critical inner voice of intense shame. This is not striving for excellence. These are people who are trying to prove who they are and prove their value because they've got these, not like hallucinatory voices, but they've got this self-criticism and self-loathing, probably born in their families or born from the pressure they feel from their families. They must succeed. They must achieve. And so they're trying to fight off those voices. Number two is you demonstrate a heightened or excessive sense of responsibility. These are the people that are president of the senior class or are getting scholarships out the wazoo or, you know, they're always got, got, they've got their hands up in the air. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it but they also have difficulty accepting and expressing painful emotions. That's what I was kind of talking about before. Mm. They don't, uh, they can identify that they might feel sad or something, but they can't connect with it. You very rarely, you very rarely see them cry or even maybe get angry unless the anger is about control, uh, which is the fourth thing we're going to talk about. These are warriors and they avoid situations where control isn't possible. Now, these people won't look like they're worried. They're not known to their friends. Oh, he worries about, he worries all the time. This is an inner worry. This is, yes. And so your mind's on a treadmill all the time, but you can't let anybody know. And so you, you try to, you don't want anything to interrupt um, your control of things. So guess what you are, you, if you're going to be involved, you're going to be in charge. Then uh, the fifth one is is somewhat close to the second one, but you intensely focus on tasks using accomplishment as a way to feel valuable. Um, for example, a, a guy comes to mind who said to me, you know, my mother loved me, but what she loved about me was what I could do and what I could accomplish. I didn't even like the piano, but she wanted me to be a, be a piano player. So by gosh, by his senior year in high school, he even did a, piano recital I mean he had to please her well guess what the rest of his life he was a pleaser so but and then other people might have been told they were never going to amount to anything by parents and so they also are trying to live down that voice number six is you have an active and sincere concern about the well-being of others while allowing few if any into your inner world and what that means is these are people who I mean they show up you know, one of their friends gets in trouble and they're the first person there and really helping and really caring. This isn't put on. This isn't put on. It's real sincere empathy. But no one knows what's really going on with them. There was a case. That's not a case. It's a young man died. But um, his, he had told one friend that he had at camp that he was considering dying, killing himself. The friend called his high school counselor told him or texted him or emailed him or something. And the counselor called this young man in and said, listen, we've got, I've got this contact. And she said, you're really struggling. And he said, but I see you in the cafeteria and you always look great. You're always surrounded by people, you know, what's going on. And he goes, Oh, that was a weird moment. No, I'm fine. You know, I was just having a down day, but actually that young man hung himself three weeks later. Wow. So, these things that they don't allow anyone to see, that's what's so scary because parents will say, well, how am I supposed to see it?
0: Yeah, if they're just going to say everything is fine. Yeah. And that so, makes it pretty hard.
1: Right. Right. So we'll talk about more about that in a minute. You discount or dismiss hurt or abuse from the past or even the present. These are people who will say, you know, I shouldn't even be in therapy because there's so many people out there that are struggling more than I am or, They're the person, they're the teenager who says, you know, uh, I'd never go to therapy because my life's great, you know, and um, when is really maybe they've got an alcoholic parent or they've got, you know, something has happened to them. Um, And so how they do that is they rigidly over compartmentalize, meaning if something bad does happen, they, they have this box, they put it in and they, they lock it in the box and then they put it in some sort of emotional vault they have in their mind and it just goes away and it never comes back. And so these are people who, if that's a good skill to have, we all need to compartmentalize Uh, if something bad had happened to you or me this morning, um, we have this to do this afternoon. We can't stay there we need to put it, yeah, away. We set have, it aside. all right set it aside See, i'll come but back these, to you later yeah. but these people don't take it back out they don't take yeah. it back out yeah um number eight i really felt like was important because as a clinician i didn't want people to say oh yes i identify with perfectly hidden depression and then stop there they also you you know certainly can have simultaneous clinical conditions like OCD, like generalized anxiety, like panic attacks, mm. like eating disorders, like addictions even. And so it's important to realize that those things may actually need attention before the perfectly hidden depression does. Number nine, these people want to count their blessings. I mean, they, it's a foundation of their well-being. And what they don't realize is that, you know, For every blessing, I mean, you have a a great podcast and I'm sure you love doing it and it's an honor, but at the same time, you have to find guests and you have to work on it. And, you know, it's not something that just happens easily. So even if something's a blessing, you know, sometimes the underbelly of it can be really difficult. And then the, the very last one is these people don't do emotional intimacy. They usually are very successful professionally. We reward perfectionism. We were yeah. people who get things done ahead of time and it's perfect. Uh, we want those people to be our brain surgeons and our CPAs and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, we, they don't know how to do emotional intimacy. So often they're drawn to people who either don't know how to do it either or want an under, fun- uh, want an overfunctioner or someone who's going to take all the responsibility. But just sometimes they're partnered up with someone who goes you know I've been with you for 10 years or I've been your friend for 12 years and I've never seen you cry about anything I've never seen you look ruffled I've never seen you uh complain you know what's going on you know so it's these people are sort of use a fancy word enigmatic to people who are around them because they don't um, it may be that their friend or their partner is really yearning to have a closer experience with them. They don't know how to do it.
0: That's a lot, I guess. But it does see how they all go together. <laughs> so, then, this is both things to look for, to look out for in yourself and your partner, and also in your kids?
1: Yes. You know, a lot of times if if a teenager or a young adult kills themselves and it's local news or something, quite appropriately, the local news pulls out the classic signs of depression, and there's some of them are different with teenagers and young adults. You know, sometimes you'll see a change in hygiene with a teenager or you'll see a change of friends or... All of a sudden, they they dress differently, or you know, in adults you see more. They give away things, or you know, they they isolate, or they seem to be saying goodbye to people. Um, sometimes it's overt, and but sometimes it's very subtle. Classic signs of depression being things like not enjoying things you used to enjoy, or or being by yourself too much, or something like that. And sometimes I'm just so frustrated when I think about this particular kind of depression because. Uh, even if the person who killed themselves, there were no signs, they don't talk about vulnerability, Andy. And I think, you know, if you grow up in a home where anger or sadness or fear or disappointment isn't being allowed to be expressed, that's a huge problem because for you to be vulnerable, your parents have had to model vulnerability for you. You have to know that. You know they're not going to judge you for that. One of the, a great phone call that happened between me and my son when he was in college. Uh, he knew I'd done something really stupid in college, and sure enough, he did the same thing. But I talked about it openly, right? And so uh, he called me and told me, and I first had that mother, you know, that mother reaction of, "Oh no, I can't believe you did this," you know. And then he said, "Mom, I." I called you because I knew you'd been through this. And I, thought, I settled down. I said, you're right. Let's just talk about this. But the fact that he said, I called you because I knew you'd been through this. Yeah. I was vulnerable also with him. And then he could be vulnerable with me. That come phone call meant so much to me. And we worked through it together. But, you know, I think if, if their parents listening and you don't talk about your disappointment or your sadness or your fears or your struggles with your children in an age appropriate way, obviously. Yeah. They're not going to know that it's okay to talk about theirs. Now that may seem an overly simplistic answer and maybe in some ways it is a little bit, but that's, that's what you've got control over is what do you model for your kids?
0: So then how do you do that? Or what's, how do you know where the line is of what to share?
1: Well, you don't want to share necessarily, let's say you're divorced and you don't want to share some kind of struggle you're having with their father or mother. Yeah. But you can say things like, you know, I'm disappointed in myself that I couldn't make this marriage work. You know, Mm. I tried and I failed at some things and... Um, I'm sorry it's affected you I mean, you talk about the stuff that, or, you know, let's say you, you, you're going for a job and you don't get it. You talk about, gosh, I really wanted that job and I'm disappointed. I'm a little embarrassed. Um, oh. you're, you're just vulnerable. Uh, let's yeah. say you start dating somebody as an adult and they, they, they ghost you, you know, you talk about that with your kids and well, that felt crummy you know, I'm kind of mad, I'm hurt, I don't know what's wrong, I'm confused about what to do. Again, just not in, not in a way that then it becomes their responsibility to help you fix the problem. Right. But in a way where you say, you know, if you get into this situation, I just want you to know it's okay to feel these things. You're just modeling for them rather than leaning on them to listen to you like they're your therapist. That's inappropriate.
0: Right. Or looking for them to tell you it's okay or something.
1: Right, right, right.
0: What's the difference between what, what you actually do or how you actually treat between classic depression or perfectly hidden depression?
1: It's very different. The work in classic depression, depression in and of itself, classic depression is kind of an implosion of the self. It means that it's almost inherently self-centered. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that it's just you can't get engaged with thinking about other people. It's very hard for you to do that. It's hard for you to care about the things you used to care about. In fact, sometimes it can seem almost impossible dependent upon how severe your depression is. So... What you're trying to help someone do, who's classically depressed, is one of course understand how they got there, but also begin that very tricky dynamic of helping them get re-engaged with themselves, with their world, with their friends, with their work, with what they used to care about, so that you know your the, the effort is to go outward with them. Yeah. Perfectly with perfectly hidden depression it's quite the opposite. These people look great on the outside. They Mm. they don't have energy going inward. Sometimes they don't even know how to do it. Andy, they, they'll look at me and go, I don't know what you feel. You want me to get in touch with my sadness. What sadness? I don't have any sadness. Yeah. They have really, um, not ever learned how to connect with that. And so you can provide them with experiences to help them begin to feel more. You can give them permission to feel things they've never felt. You can start pointing out how all these traits are combined in them. Perfectionism is kind of a hard thing because we often think of it as a strength. Yeah, I mean, and striving for excellence is a strength. It's a character trait that's really good. I mean, most people would think. Um, but when it goes south on you, when it begins to darken your, your uh, rational thinking, when you have to be perfect rather than you're choosing to really try your best, then your ability to go inward and to check out, am I tired? Am I sad? Am I disappointed? Am I afraid? You, you don't pay attention to any of that stuff. And so therapy is about getting them to turn inward and realize that they they have this vast inner emotional life that's viable and important to connect with.
0: We're here today with Dr. Margaret Rutherford talking about how even the most perfect looking teens can sometimes have deep problems and we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show.
1: You know, I think we think of vulnerability as something that makes us seem weak. And what I've discovered is that actually when you can account, when you can sort of own the things that you don't do as well or the things that you're, you struggle with, you actually empower yourself. There's a, a guy that I actually quoted in the book, and he now he was an adult, but he said that he went to a psychiatrist about three weeks before he attempted suicide, and the psychiatrist handed him a Beck depression inventory, which of course he passed with flying colors, meaning there was no depression. Mm-hmm. And then he tried to die, and the psychiatrist actually came to see him and said, what's going on? You were just in my office three weeks ago, and he said, you asked me the wrong questions. He goes, what do you mean? He said, your inventory asked me, do you feel hopeless? The answer is no. If the question had been, if you did feel hopeless, would you tell me? The answer would still be no. But you would have more of a clue as to what's going on.
0: Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.